Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 423 of Her, the podcast where you're going to hear the truth about her mind, her body, her life, and why she's not getting any damn thing done in her life, which means, whoops, you promised to do that and where did it go? It just disappeared into the vapors, those wonderful goals and objectives and everything else. We're going to talk about that today. Before we begin this episode, just know that this show is sponsored by Solaray Vitamins, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y Vitamins. Oh my goodness, women out there, you know what you're doing. You absolutely strive to get in your fruits and vegetables and and all those wonderful colors and diversity. And then by the end of the day, what happened? You know what happened. Anyone out there who is a woman who says, you know, I'm going to get this, this meal and nutrition thing together, you know that at least half the time we kind of got lost in there in the shuffle, didn't we? So this is why Solaray multivitamins are around. Please go to solaray.com and check out the women's multivitamins, the liposomals. All righty. Now, this is also your first reminder to run on over to iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show because we just sit here waiting for your feedback. My whole team just loves to hear from you. So thank you already to so many of you who do that and let's get some more on board. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, it's time for Her. Her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. I have the absolute pleasure of introducing everyone out there on the Her Podcast land to Dr. Fuchsia Sirwa. What a gorgeous name. I'm going to sit here and say that about 33 times before I get it right. All I remember is I stop at Fuchsia because that is just so gorgeous. So, ah, Fuchsia is the author of Procrastination, What It Is, why it's a problem, and what you can do about it. And therefore, this was my little toss out early on in the introduction to why aren't we getting things done, ladies? And this is a little bit of a woman's kind of nuance to this as well. So Fuchsia, ah, she is a social health personality psychologist interested in the factors that create risk or resilience for health and well-being. Fuchsia has a particular interest in that how self-regulation, how we manage and direct our thoughts, emotions, behaviors to reach our goals can impact health and well-being and the factors and qualities that contour people's capacities to self-regulate. Now, she is also professor in social and health psychology at Durham University and was previously a professor at the University of Sheffield. Oh, did I say that right? Sheffield. All right. Oh, my gosh. And prior to arriving in the UK in 2015, she was a Canada Research Chair and the coordinator of the Multidisciplinary Psychological Health and Wellbeing Research Cluster at Bishop's University. Okay, Fuchsia, you have street creds is what we call it in the USA. 
That means we'll listen to you because you have all those degrees and wonderful things that we love to be able to know is behind what we talk about here. Now, first of all, it is wonderful finally getting a chance to meet you. I actually saw your TED Talk. I've done TED Talks, so I know how much fun this can be, and you did an absolutely amazing job. But what really piqued my interest, peak, I kind of like that actually, what piqued my interest was the fact that you went into the brain and you really looked at why it is that we do that little to-do list in the morning and we have the best of intentions, and by 6 p.m. every day, we look at it, and nothing has been done. <laughs> and you're, well, how did I get lost in here? And since this is the Her podcast, we're going to have a bit of a female nuance to this, because we are different. So, Fuchsia, the name of your TED Talk is Here's the real reason you procrastinate before we really dive into that juicy little title. Why don't you tell us what procrastination is and the difference between that and, say, delaying things, which we do too. Well, first off, I want to say thank you very much for, for inviting me to come and speak with you. It's a real real pleasure, a real thrill to be here and, and talking to you and talking to your listeners. I think that's a really good first question because it's good to clear sort of the decks on what the difference is between procrastination and delay because they get confused so frequently. And you get people thinking they procrastinate and actually just delayed. And then you get people thinking, oh, I'm just delaying. It's okay. And actually, no, you're procrastinating. So the key thing is that for procrastination, we have actually a really formal specific definition that we use. And we have to have this definition because otherwise we don't know if we're studying and what we're researching is actually procrastination or your garden variety delay, right? So procrastination is a particular form of delay. It is a harmful form of delay, but it involves the unnecessary and voluntary delay of an important and intended task, despite knowing that you or others will be worse off for that delay. And a couple of the key ingredients in there really is that this is not because some emergency came up and you've got to put that thing aside and you, you know, you had it on your to-do list at the beginning of the day and now you didn't get to it because there was a, you're in an emergency that just completely blew up your day. That's not procrastination because it was out of your control. Or, you know, if it's a work-related task, right? And your manager says, oh, you got to put that aside and do something else again. That's not something that you decided. So, you know, it's really unique with procrastination is we actually say, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And then we don't do it. And it's not for any good reason, right? <laughs> and it's not, they're not minor tasks either. These are things, I mean, when we make these intentions to tasks, it's usually something that's important. We know it has to get done. Sometimes there's a time limit on it. And sometimes there's just, you know, I just need to get this done by, by you know, the end of the day, for example. So that's procrastination. Delay, on the other hand, it doesn't have usually the harm attached to it. It's not usually something that is voluntary. When it is voluntary, so you can't have delayed it's voluntary, often it might be a wise decision. So it may just be that another more important task has come along and you need to reprioritize. Or it may be that you start that task and you realize you don't have the resources or the information to actually complete it. In which case you say, you know what, I got to pause this before I can get the information I need. Right. So we call that sort of a wise delay or a sagacious delay because it makes sense to delay. It's not procrastination. And the key thing there is that you actually do come back to the task. 
what happens with procrastination often is we put that task aside and then it's really hard to get back to it. And we struggle to get back to it and we may sit down and try and get back to it and then we put it off again. You were the first person I ever listened to. I, I heard you on a podcast. I think it was the American Psychological Association's podcast. It was absolutely brilliant. And I said, okay, that's it. And then I listened to some more of your work. And the one thing that absolutely was a game changer for me that I had never really heard before in in such an articulate way that it just sort of like drove it home to me was the whole issue of managing your emotions. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you are the academic in this science. I see people go down rabbit holes. You know, they sit there and women get an A plus in shame, blame, and guilt. Like I'm an idiot, shoulda, coulda, woulda, right down that little rabbit hole, because that's sort of the way we're made. You know, we weren't perfect today. You know, we had all these great ideas. And then what we do is we spend about an hour and a half beating ourselves up. And the point is, we missed what this was really all about. We look at all the symptoms, which are, you know, the anxiety is like, oh my gosh, now I've got to face doing this very difficult task and I've already delayed it a week. So now I feel shame on top of the fact that I'm late and whatever. But there's something else going on that you you have articulated so well about what goes on with the ability to actually manage feelings and emotions in the moment. Can you go into that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the key thing there too, I mean, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. It's, you know, this idea of mood management is is at the core of procrastination, you know. And so one of my common things is, you know, it's not about poor time management, it's about poor mood management. And, and no matter how many time lists or, you know, getting those apps to say, I'll do this at this time again, that's not going to solve it. That's not going to deal with it because that's a rational approach to which something that is essentially irrational, right? It's emotion-driven and emotion-based. And with the emotions that we have about a task, and it's not about the task itself, it's, it's kind of that relationship that we have with the task, it's sort of a transaction, if you like. That task may threaten your self-esteem, it may cause you that anxiety, you know, it may make you doubt yourself. I mean, so that's the, the first part there with the emotions, but it's how we manage those emotions then that decides whether we go on to actually procrastinate or get that task done. And when we're procrastinating with those emotions, if we can't manage them in that moment, okay? And there's a lot of reasons for that. Just It doesn't mean that you don't have the ability or you're not very good at it. There's a lot of other contextual reasons, which I can get into a bit later. But if you can't find a way to downregulate, just sort of bring those emotions down so you can go, okay, what do I got to do next? You've got to find a way, right? We don't like being in, in a, an uncomfortable state. So you take that task, you put it aside, and boom. I've just regulated my emotions, but you've done it in an external way. It's quick, it's easy, and unfortunately, it's reinforcing because you've just provided relief. And then, as you mentioned, that game, the guilt, the shame, all of that, that starts coming back later. So that's a temporary means to manage those emotions. But we know we put that task off. We know we still have to get that done. And then you said you then you start feeling bad. So what's the matter with me? Why can't I get this thing done? Why, you know, why am I struggling with this so much? All those feelings layer onto it. And the problem is that rather than driving you, and a lot of people think that guilt and shame drive people and get them motivated, if you're having difficulty managing those negative emotions, 
all they're going to do is make you want to run a million miles away from that task even more. This is sort of the paradox there, and we don't realize that. And, and I think not just in how we treat ourselves, but how we treat other people we might see struggling with the task, right? We might get on their case. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to really push them if I remind them how much this is affecting me, how much this is making my life miserable. They're not getting this report done for me on time or, or what have you. If I really just kind of come down on them or sort of you know, try and activate that guilt, they'll get it done. And no, it actually works in reverse. It, it sort of backfires because you've added another layer of negative emotions onto negative emotions that the person is already struggling to manage. And is the only way they found to manage them is to put that task off. So you're just going to ensure they're going to be caught in this, this downward cycle of, of procrastination. I'd love to build on that. And that is, tell us about the part of the brain that helps us with executive function, with managing, organizing, and being able to be more accountable, as it were. You also mentioned, and because this is a very important part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, it is not fully developed till you're 25 ish. So, my question is that when you have a very chaotic childhood with people who themselves cannot manage their own emotions, and that's kind of your mentorship. You know, watching people kind of out of control and chaotic doesn't mean everybody is, but maybe it's just key people like mom, dad, somebody, a guardian. Then does that portend for tough times ahead in terms of managing your own emotions? Yeah, I would say that it does. I think, you know, our, we learn to manage emotions, like you said, often by modeling the behavior of those around us. So you nailed it there with this idea that you've got chaotic emotions or people just don't manage them. The other extreme also is a poor model for emotion regulation. So you've got parents or guardians or people that are close to you that when something's really bothering them, just clam up. Whoa, there you go. Clam up. Yeah. You don't see any mood management at all. You don't know what it looks like. So when you have those feelings, it's like, unless you've somehow developed, okay, I just don't, you know, I'll just keep it all to myself, which doesn't last very long as a temporary fix too, to sort of suppressing those feelings then yeah, you're going to try and struggle to find whatever works. And like I said, unfortunately, procrastination is a quick, easy way of dealing with that stress that we feel from those negative emotions, right? And so you've got the prefrontal cortex, which is all about organized, very rational. But prior to that, when we face a stressor, and a stressor can be a report that we have to write, you know, something that we know it's going to be evaluated by others or that may have huge implications for our future. Maybe it's a conversation we have to have with a loved one that's uncomfortable. You've got that task there and, and looming and, and ready to go, but so those emotions are what you do with them, right? If you put that aside, even for a short period of time, you learn very quickly that you get that relief. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more, needless to say. Women in particular and I'm kind of putting on my little doctor hat here, but women in particular are more subject to generalized anxiety disorder. So we go from zero to anxiety, you know, in the blink of an eye. And that's something that already is a bit of an Achilles heel in the sense that, I mean, it's great for mothering and stuff to a certain degree. You know, you're, you're kind of like right on top of the kids. You're not going to miss a single thing. You know, you're the best caregiver on the planet, et cetera. I'm obviously not saying that men aren't, but women, I think, just have a greater tendency toward that. However, 
this can work to our <laughs> detriment when when we go from zero to anxiety. And then there's the other P word <gasps> that that happens with women. And and I, I'm going to be so daring here in the you know, in the presence of a great psychologist, I'm going to say that women are more perfectionistic than men. (laughs) You know, if you were born with a set of ovaries, honey, you are a perfectionist. All you do is spend the rest of your life trying to tamp that sucker down. But seriously, what happens then is like you do the to-do list, you have the greatest of intentions, and you want to do it, not just do it, but do it perfectly. All right. So build on that one. Yeah. Oh, no, exactly. I mean, that's another source of of the anxiety, right? Because if we put the perfectionism aside, right, let's just say, you know, you've got, I'm I'm using the report because it's just an easy thing and in work life often we have to write reports for something, but it could just as easily be a difficult conversation with somebody or any other task that causes us stress. But, you know, so we've got this report to write and it's, you know, if you're not a perfectionist, right, but you still know that, your chances for career advancement, how you're viewed by others, right? Your colleagues and by your, you know, your manager and your superiors all rests on how well you do on this. It's not about you doing it perfect, but you're, you're actually, there's some implications for you that are stressful. That is enough to get the anxiety going. So now if we then layer on some perfectionism, you're dialing that up like five, 10 times because what's happening now is it's not just that you need to get it done and that there will be the you know, potential negative consequences. It's that it has to be done to this degree. It has to be done just so, or else all these negative things will happen. That's kind of, you can see it's already a problem without perfectionism, but just how much more of a problem it is. And, and with the perfectionism in there, it's often you're striving. It's not for your own goals. It's especially with the, the more maladaptive uh, form of perfectionism, which we refer to as perfectionistic concerns or socially prescribed perfectionism, you have a standard that you think that you have to achieve with your performance on whatever that task is that you believe other people are holding you to. But it's all up here. It's, it's all a perception. It's, you know, it's society's norms. It's what you see on the internet. It's what you believe other people are achieving. I have to do it like this or else. And so it becomes this very sort of extreme standard that you hold yourself to, which as soon as you start thinking about that, my gosh, who wouldn't feel anx- you know, anxious and want to just sort of walk away in the other direction? I also think that in addition to you know, society's norms and all the rest of it, you said that so beautifully. I will also say that, especially in those career paths that where it's mostly men, and it has been for a long time, then you have to add that extra layer of they're going to hold you to a different standard of excellence because you stick out. Do you deserve a chair at the table? Do you, you know, all the rest of it. So I think that, you know, it's really great to acknowledge all of this and to understand, as it were, the lay of the land. And this is why we're having this discussion right now because there are all of these factors at play. And then there's one other thing that's just, it's a real thing that I'm very, very interested in. At the National Institutes of Health, you know, my work as a senior fellow was 
in the field of stress physiology. We did molecular biology, obviously, but I really got into some brilliant work done by Dr. Vince Felitti and others with the adverse child event the ACE scale and all of that beautiful work, which you obviously know backwards and forwards. One of the biggest findings for the Her Podcast audience from this wonderful work that this Kaiser physician did was he stumbled upon something. And that is a very large number of people have had adverse childhood events in their lives and really buried it, never really talked to anyone about it. No one really asked about it. And only now flashing forward, have we really seen the significant and serious impact of this? I don't mean that you had like a building fall on you or that you had every single form of child abuse, whatever. It could be just simple abandonment. It could be neglect. It could be emotional abandonment. It could be lack of attachment. All of these things impact upon the development of the prefrontal cortex because it's taking a hit, major league. And then, of course, many people remember in my prior her podcast, me talking about epigenetics and the changes that can take place in your own genome when you've been battered like this emotionally, physically, sexually, you know, whatever it turned out to be, you know, for so many years. And I will dare say that having a history like this will have an impact upon your ability to manage emotions. What do you think? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, managing emotions... You've got, you know, the early childhood influences. It's a whole nature-nurture debate, really, is when it comes down to anything. Like so many things, right? It's it's multifactorial. So if you've experienced these adverse childhood events, as you mentioned, it has a huge impact on your overall, you know, capacities to manage stress, right? So there's get you get wired in certain sorts of responses and that too. And this, you know, you start looking at things like panic disorders and panic attacks too. There's a lot of research in that area that shows just how much the actual experience of that panic attack goes in, reshapes the brain, and then rewires and feeds back into just how susceptible you are to future panic attacks. You can get caught in a loop. So there's some theories about that as well. So I think, again, you've got, if you've experienced those sorts of adverse events, your capacities for coping, your sensitivities to stress. And I think that's the key thing here. Your sensitivity to stress and negative emotions is tuned at a different level than what it is for other people. And then if you've got the poor models of mood management on top of that, that can actually, again, build on those those difficulties in, in your capacity to regulate emotions. It's always a tricky thing when we, we talk about mood regulation, because on the one hand, we, we have to acknowledge these factors that do play a central role, both physiologically, biologically, and, and also in terms of sort of the developmental models and, and experiences that we had. But that doesn't mean either that you're stuck in a pattern too, because if we can retrain ourselves to manage these emotions. We can, we're working at maybe a deficit if we've had these severe experiences in, in childhood that have made us more sensitive to certain stressors, made us more avoidant. I mean, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about procrastination. It's an avoidant response to something negative. It's a, a way of coping with those negatives in an avoidant way, which gives you a quick, easy sort of route out of that uncomfortable experience, especially if that uncomfortable experience is 
in any way linked or reminds you of, of difficult past experiences, especially from childhood. But that being said, there are ways to, to work around that too. And I think that's, that's the key. Yay. Let's start talking about ways to work around this. Cause you know, my poor audience is like, well, wait a minute now, know. you know, like, you know, you gotta like throw me out a couple little crumbs of hope here. And I'm here to tell you that what we learned in the stress lab and with many of the patients we worked with is that looking forward, learning from the past, going forward and then applying some actually insanely beautiful, simple, basic things that you can do. So I'm going to lead off, and then we're going to go back and forth, because you mentioned one already, breath. But one of the things I love to do is start with self-compassion. And women, you get an F minus in this, and you know what I'm talking about. You'll give the dog compassion as well you should, needless to say. I've got two German shepherds at my feet at all times. All right, you give the guy on the street a complete stranger compassion. Well, what do you do for yourself? You're like, oh, I don't really deserve that, and uh, you know, and I don't know how to do it. And, uh, okay, stop that right now. And that's what I have to say. Stop that. Now stop for a minute, and then what I love to do is instead of just throwing a bunch of words at you, what I love to do is ask you to do the following. Take your right hand, place it over your heart. Take your left hand, place it over your right, and then just simply sit with it for a minute. Like, I'm okay. You're doing the best you possibly can. You go, girl. It's going to be all right. It's all good because you're your best self-advocate. You are your best advocate. And that's what you need to start with and just start to calm it down. And then, Fuchsia, what else do you do? Well, I think yep, self-compassion, yeah, that's the big thing. I agree that totally, I mean, women score horribly on all research <laughs> supports this, that we just, we always score lower on self-compassion than men. A lot of men, men are surprised to hear that for some reason, I guess, because women are viewed as being very compassionate. They think, oh, why wouldn't you be self-compassionate? Yeah, but that's other people. Right? <laughs> but anyways, I think the issue with self-compassion, and I agree with you that being able to take that time and that space for yourself and, and coming to that place where you deserve that, that's ultimately where we want to be. But I've actually been, we've been working on a research program the last three years where we've been investigating the barriers that people have to being self-compassionate because surprisingly, a lot of people have difficulty being self-compassionate. You can give them all the evidence. You can sh show how good it is for motivation, for your well-being, even for your physical health. And they still are like either, I don't deserve it or... People have negative beliefs about compassion. And this, I think, comes from some of the norms that we have about society, and especially right now, uber productivity, like get more done in less time, right? And there was one really nice study where they asked people to imagine themselves as being a self-compassionate person. And then they asked them to rate themselves on some personality characteristics, right? These bipolar things like lazy versus ambitious, self-centered versus caring about others, all these, these types of adjectives. The other thing that was interesting is they divided the people in this study into two groups, those who were already quite self-compassionate, the score quite high, and those who were low in self-compassion. And what they saw was some really distinct differences in how people viewed themselves being self-compassionate based on their current level of self-compassion. And as you can imagine, those who were self-compassionate had very positive things to see about, oh, 
imagining myself as self-compassionate? Will I be, you know, I'd be ambitious, I'd be getting things done, I'd be, you know, caring about other people, I'd be productive, all these things. People who were low in self-compassion, when they had to imagine themselves being self-compassionate, you know the adjectives that they tended to use? Lazy, selfish, unambitious, self-centered, unproductive. And this is the problem because if we see that self-compassion is something that's not going to help us get our stuff done and be productive and reach our goals, we're not going to adopt it. We're going to go back, default back to that, crack the whip, make yourself feel guilty, feel ashamed that you're not getting done. That's going to make you drive yourself forward. And so these are some of the things that they're coming out in the research and then certainly been confirmed by our research. Perfectionism interferes with self-compassion. Absolutely. We've done multiple experiments where we've gotten induced people to think perfectionistically. <laughs> and in some instances, especially where performance is really high, say in amateur athletes, for example, but then we give them uh, instructions to be self-compassionate. They can't do it because it's just, nope, the perfectionism is, has now been activated in their brain. And, and that's all they can think I've got to do. I can't, be, I can't be nice to myself. That's not, that's not part of it. So how can someone then tie it up and all? I mean, this is fascinating research. I didn't realize it was that hard to be self-compassionate. I wonder if it's also a generational thing, like the younger people are more driven and get this thing go. I mean, I don't know. I'm just sort of conjecturing that maybe as you get older, the old older, wiser, more mellow kind of situation, you tend to have more self. Who the hell knows? <laughs> you're the expert. What did you, what have you found? Well, that, I mean, that's something I wanted to look at is, is what you're saying in terms of generationally. I mean, I would speculate though that we see these things running in parallel. So, you know, as we get older, we tend to care less about what other people think about us, right? And less perhaps we we focus more on, on our own goals and our own standards. Whereas when you're younger, you're, you're, you know, you tend to be driven a little bit more by society standards and expectations and those expectations and those norms about productivity and what it takes to be productive. You might be more susceptible to those when you're younger. But again, this is, there's no real research to support that. That's just sort of a, an educated guess there. But I think the key thing that this research with the, the barriers is, is showing us is that it's the ideas that we have around being self-compassionate. Like people don't understand what it is. That's one of the big barriers we see. The other barrier, and so let's say you get somebody, you convince them that self-compassion is actually this really good thing. There's been a few studies to suggest this too, where, where a more qualitative study where they've interviewed people who are struggling to be self-compassionate. And they say, yeah, self-compassion is a great thing, but I don't think I can do it. So it's so foreign for some people. To do. There was one study conducted in the UK, you know, this British stoicism, right? It's like just, you know, keep calm and carry on, right? Like that kind of hard working sort stiff of Stiff upper lip. Yeah, stiff upper lip sort of thing. Those sorts of cultural values and norms often come into play too in how difficult or easy it is for somebody to be self-compassionate and how they view the route to being productive and fulfilled in, in your lives. And if you think it's this hard route, with these highly strong perfectionistic standards, then that's going to definitely interfere. So one of the things that we're looking at too with our research, and we have found some support for this, if you can change people's beliefs, if you have more positive beliefs about being self-compassionate, it makes it easier to be self-compassionate. But another thing I would add too is even if you you start to think, okay, self-compassion is good, but I just, it's so foreign to me. I really don't know what to do. You can kind of set up these if-then 
sorts of statements for yourself. We call them implementation intentions. So you can think about being self-compassionate as a behavior, like you would for wanting to cut down on sugar or exercise more and the barriers that you face when you might do that. So, you know, if you're trying to exercise more, you might say, if you're trying to change your diet and eat healthier, and you know, you're going to be around friends who don't eat very healthy, you might set up in advance, you know, if my friend says, why don't you have this piece of cake? I'll say, no, thank you, and I'll make a choice for something healthier. So that's sort of an implementation intention. Well, you can do the same thing with self-compassion. So you can say, if I'm in a situation where I'm feeling bad about something I did or I didn't do as well or I failed at something, rather than feeling self-critical and being hard on myself, I'm going to be kind and give myself a break and realize that everybody makes mistakes. I'm not the first person to make this mistake and I won't be the last. So you prepare yourself rather than trying to put yourself on the spot where you're experiencing that difficulty, right? Because self-compassion is not self-care. It is a response to failure, response to personal flaws and difficulties and how we respond. It's a healthier way of responding to those difficulties and self-criticism. But when you're in that mood and something has, something's gone wrong and you're feeling really bad, there's emotions and, and the anxiety and you know the amygdala hijacks the prefrontal logic of doing things. That's going to kick in. So this planning ahead and starting to tell yourself, this is how I'm going to react next time I have a difficult situation. Practicing that can actually be beneficial and then set you up to have a new pattern of response because otherwise most often we are going to default to the self-critical response and then it gets harder to come back and return to that with a more self-compassionate one. You use the four-letter word, kind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's another one that's really tough. Like, you know, you could be so kind to the neighbor next door, you could be kind to the whatever, but then when it comes to yourself, rot-row, and the same thing happens with forgiveness. So all of this kind of, you know, rolls together, but if you lead with self-compassion, that really helps. And I think that self-compassion is an extremely personal thing. I have found that when you develop a little bit of a dialogue, it's a self-inner dialogue, One of my favorite ones is you did the best you could. That's actually the fourth of the four agreements by Ruiz in that wonderful book, The Four Agreements. Just simply do the best you can under the circumstances. So whether you just, you know, bombed out at the Boston Marathon, like the world's best marathoner, and I mean, just ever, he finishes an entire marathon in two hours and one minute or something insane. I mean, he came in 16th unheard of. So what kind of dialogue is he having right now? Well, he, he learned a lot. Those I've run the Boston Marathon, those hills, you know, they kind of talk to you. And so if you just say you just did the best you could, and then to a certain degree, I don't know how you feel about this, but a lot of people say they like kind of talking to their inner young person, like you're okay. Like the way you'd almost talk to a child or a young person that you truly love and whatever, and kind of come in contact with that person, connect with that person deep inside. And just, especially if that person came from trauma and was abused and stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that way, I mean, I think what you're describing sounds to me sort of technically what we call self-soothing. The model of self-compassion, I've been kind of discussing is one put forward by Kristen Neff, 
but Paul Gilbert has a, another model, alternative model of, of self-compassion. It's uh, used more in clinical populations. And within that context, he talks about this idea of, of self-soothing. And Neff talks about it all too. But that, that kindness, self-kindness, that self-soothing, what that does though too is there's physiological consequences to that. So when you self-soothe, and you say it's okay, like you know, if it's directed at an inner child or, or just the self, you know, you right now, whoever you want to direct that soothing towards of, of your temp- different temporal selves, if you like, um, you know, that soothing activates the parasympathetic nervous system. That's right, and that starts to quiesce the stress response that's been activated by the sympathetic nervous system, and so that. It has a very real, I mean, this is a wonderful demonstration of the mind-body connection and just how something so simple can have such a huge effect on, on our, our physical reactions our, and our overall state of physical and mental well-being. That's why I love better living through your own chemistry. When you're saying those self-soothing things, you're actually activating a piece of the autonomic nervous system. That's kind of what we always call the rest and digest end of it versus the fight and flight which is the rock and roll part of this. So we've got the self-compassion. What about breathing? Breathing again. I mean, that's just, that's another easy way to activate the, that parasympathetic nervous system and, and to just help, help quiesce things. And breathing is, I mean, it's a, it's a quick and easy way of, of dealing with stress that you're experiencing and bring things down to a little bit more of a level where you're not feeling that chaos of the amygdala going threat, 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 got to do something, got to do something. And sometimes just not doing anything, <laughs> not in a procrastination, not doing anything way, but a, in a not doing anything way where before you decide, am I going to disengage with this task because I just can't manage those emotions right now? Or, or am I going to actually sit down and see if there's a way forward and, and maybe this beast of a task that I think is this huge mountain I have to climb actually is a little molehill. That happens a lot too with tasks is we make emotional mountains out of molehills. We anticipate that something's going to be so much worse than what it is. That's something we call effective forecasting, where there's been tons of research that's been done in that area that suggests as, as, as human beings, we're actually really bad at predicting our future emotional state. So if we're imagining ourselves working on this task, you know, and it's like, oh, it's going to be horrible. It's going to take forever. I'm going to get so frustrated. I'm going to be so hard. I just, I just can't face. And then you actually sit down. And you do the task and you're like, it's done in five minutes. You go, oh my goodness. What was I thinking? What was going on? And, and, and I've actually done this myself too. I mean, oh no, <laughs> I, I, lived, you know? <laughs> I learned about this. I stumbled into this in college. I just, you know, I would build it all up and oh my gosh. And, and it, this is going to be the absolute worst, whether it's studying for a biology midterm or whatever the issue was. Then I just had this aha moment so that when I actually delved into it, I got lost into it. It was this really cool thing where I no longer had the gerbil wheel going in my brain with the amygdala and the fight and flight, you know, just having a horrible time up there. And all of a sudden, it was like fascinating. It was like, wow, this this question that I need to answer here in this homework is really actually kind of cool. Next thing you know, an hour went by, and you've knocked off you know ten out of twelve questions, and you're like, just like you said, it's this absolutely stunned moment of this was nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. What the heck was I thinking? And I actually look forward to that. As a writer, 
I'm on my writing my sixth book now for crying out loud. You know how that goes because you wrote yours. It's way fun. You know, you sit down, you go, oh no, here we go. And I find that as soon as I just dive in there and just, I love to find out how many pieces, segments I could divide a particular task up into until it becomes somewhat ludicrous. It's like I'm writing a chapter on something. So could I divide it up into 20 little pieces and then put them all together instead of going, I'm writing this monumental chapter, <laughs> and we, we're just like, oh no, I'm never going to. Well, that, exactly. That's just what happens when we see tasks as this huge, overwhelming thing. It just, we're going to back away from it. And uh, you know, one of the best, best sort of tips, I guess, if you like, for dealing with these huge tasks is, as you said, to break them down to small bits. And it's not because a lot of it, I think, is, you know, you get that sense of self-efficacy and confidence. Every time you achieve one, you feel better. That's playing a role, too. But the main reason that that strategy works is because you're reducing. You're taking one big, overwhelming task and reducing it to small, bite-sized, mildly stressful tasks. And so we can manage the emotions around those mildly stressful tasks better than we can around that whole overwhelming task. Well, I also add to it one other little piece, and I know you've touched on it. I'm a meditator. So I learned actually transcendental meditation a number of years ago. I found it to be just, you know, it was the perfect fit. It's like finding a, a shoe that fits. Many other forms just didn't speak to me. And I kind of cobbled together a little bit of my own way of doing it, as everyone should. It customized to make it work for yourself. But I think that just calming your mind with some kind of a stillness, reflective kind of practice, I think helps to support the prefrontal cortex and your executive function. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. There's been some of the earliest research we did on this, looking at mindfulness and procrastination, for example, and looking at mindfulness more as a quality. So just a tendency towards, you know, observing and reflecting and, and that type of thing. And we found that not surprisingly, people who were chronic procrastinators tended to not be very mindful. As well, we asked them about their involvement in mindfulness-based practices, such as um, Tai Chi and meditation and yoga. And again, these were not things that they practiced, <laughs> which, you know, sort of made sense from the perspective of, of mood regulation. But Or even just taking a walk. I have found meditative walks, or even if you're going to do it briskly, or just getting out into nature. I'm an eco-psychology person. I'm absolutely, well, I'm an athlete, so I, you know, I can't help it. I'm horribly biased here, but nature is so healing. And it gives you a chance to be more expansive. The creative literature has, has shown this very well. You want to be creative, take a, take a walk in nature. And then all of a sudden, there's all of this possibility. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another form more. I mean, meditation, like you said, is not, or, you know, mindfulness is not necessarily one practice. It's a, a variety of different practices. Knitting and crocheting can be mindful because you're in the moment doing it. It's whatever puts you present in, the, in that moment and, and is in sort of you're in your flow space. But anyway, so that was the first, one of the first studies that we, we saw that link between procrastination and mindfulness. And more recently, we've been applying actual mindfulness interventions, especially for students. So the student population, that's where a lot of the procrastination research has happened because that's, we 
we see the procrastination happen in that context for a variety of reasons. A, they've got more deadlines. And how old are they? They're not 25 yet. That's the other reason. Exactly. That's exactly it. So they're at that, that, that stage. Come on now. You know, you got got to wait to grow it out. You know something? I could talk to you forever because one, you're a fount of knowledge. You're brilliant research in this field. I can't get enough of because I learn more and more every time I look at your studies, your book, and your wonderful breadth of work. So thank you for that because I think we all need to really wrap our heads around the fact that we get into these self-destructive rabbit holes we need to pull back and just realize there are some very simple, straightforward, basic tools we could use, and we've described those, to be able to get on with life, to move forward, to do our thing one way or the other. Everyone out there, we have been talking with Dr. Fuchsia Sirwa, who is a psychologist, professor across the pond, as we say in the business, and is the author of Procrastination, What It Is, Why It's a Problem, and What You Could Do About It. I highly recommend you look at her TED talk, which is Here's the Reason You Procrastinate. She even did a beautiful TED-Ed animation, Why You Procrastinate Even When It Feels Bad. Boy, that's provocative to say the least. Fuchsia, I can't thank you enough for being on the Herb Podcast with all of us. Thank you so much, Pam. It was my pleasure and really enjoyed chatting with you. Okay. And again, we could have done this forever. And everyone right now, run on over to iTunes to rate and review the episode because I want to hear from you. This was a fabulous talk. I literally had a look at the clock. I mean, literally, because so much time went by, I just couldn't even believe it. And here's another wonderful shout out to our sponsor, Solaray Vitamins, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y Vitamins. Run on over to solaray.com to learn about multivitamins for women and more. Oh, what a day. I'm Dr. Pam Peek. I'm host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD. Remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes, Radio MD, Spotify, all the other platforms out there. Ah, oh, what a wonderful episode. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and stay well.